Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ the Redeemer Church. This is uh, a great pleasure and privilege for me to be here with you. If you're new, I am not the real pastor here. I'm mere, a mere stand-in. Our pastor Aaron and his wife Lisa closed in a house this week. We're really thankful for that and appreciative. I thank the Lord for that opportunity for you guys. And I'm glad you had this week to not have to get a sermon ready. So praise the Lord for that and, and for you and your family and just all the ways you're blessing this church. Thank you. Um, I give you greeting, bring you greetings from our church at Redeemer, your sister church just across the state line that you are familiar with. Uh, we think of you often and pray for you always. Uh, we're just grateful for everything the Lord's doing here and um, hope that we can maintain just a wonderful relationship over the years to come until Jesus comes back. Uh, my wife and daughter could not be here because my wife is at a wedding in Nebraska, a family wedding that she and some of her other family members drove up to and would be back later today, but she really misses being here. My daughter is with her aunt and little cousins, so she's having a sleepover, so she's enjoying that. But the rest of my family, my sons and my mom are here, so we're just, just excited to be here with you. And I thought ahead when um, Aaron asked me to preach today, you know, what would I bring to you? You know I've been preaching through, or maybe if you don't know, I've been preaching through Ephesians for some time, and I thought of all those sermons, which one um, would I like to bring to you? And it's not like I want to say I want to do a do-over on it, but I've been thinking more about what I preached the first time I preached and thought I want to I have more to say about this. I think the text has more for us. And so I started honing that again this week, and I think that this um, passage will be very encouraging to you. I hope it will be. Um, according to God's word, I hope it will be. And so that's why I bring Ephesians 5, 23 through 33 to you. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, the passages on the outline that's on the insert. Um, we have before us in this passage... Um, one of the more profound Christological passages in the Bible. Um, these verses give us a dynamic picture of the kind of love that Jesus has for us, his church. That's the primary message we get. But it's a dynamic message for sure, uh, because what we have in this description of the husband of the church and all that he does for the church, we have here a metaphor, one that attaches to actual human marriage as well. Now, it applies to everybody, and every Christian should see the, the profundity of what is said here about Christ and you, the church. But it also speaks to those who are husbands. It also speaks to those who will be husbands. It speaks to wives as well and women in the church because there are definitely responsibilities you have also. But I believe that as we focus on this main, this main thrust of the passage, the rest of it will, um, I'm not saying naturally fall into order because we're all still sinners, but it definitely flows from what we have in this passage. And I hope you can see that as clearly as I think the passage lays it out. Um, this truth, we have a picture for husbands towards their wives here uh, from the greatest, husband, the greatest husband, Christ himself. What could be more practical and applicable? So here as I read God's holy word, I'll read Ephesians 5, 23 through 33. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of the living God. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, please help us to understand clearly the message of your word that is before us. Where our thinking has become skewed by the spirit of the age, please gently bring us into line with your timeless word. Please grant us your Holy Spirit's special help to comprehend and apply the teaching of your word, especially this passage. It's so practical concerning the love and commitment of Christ towards the church, and furthermore, what we learn for husbands in marriage. I lift this prayer to you in Christ's name. Amen. With marriage as a metaphor for Christ and his church, we gain a certain clarity, a certain depth about Christ's love and his commitment for us as believers, his church. But we also gain clear, helpful direction for husbands in marriage. Very practical, very applicable, totally relevant for all of us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. When I was in college, it was my junior year, and I heard a speaker in chapel who, who I recognized to be the former president of Columbia Bible College. Now, when I was a junior, um, I had just met Sherry. We had not yet discussed marriage, but I could tell that this was a woman I would want to marry. And this man came speaking, and I knew he was the president of Columbia because he had spoken at Moody, where I was going, several times before, but he was the full-time president there. And he was I don't think he was 60 yet, so for presidents of colleges, he was still in his prime as far as what he was doing, but now he had resigned from that college, and he was going on some brief speaking uh, uh, trips to uh, preach about certain topics that he, was, uh, that he knew quite a bit about, but he didn't say much about his exact situation. It was a good sermon, I remember that, but I was kind of confused as to why he was there and not still the president. Well, it turned out that the story became more and more known as the years unfolded after that. That was the early 1990s. This is the story of Robertson McQuilkin and his wife Muriel. They met as students at Columbia Bible College. Robertson McQuilkin remembers sitting behind her in chapel, watching Muriel Webendorfer run her lovely artistic fingers through her lovely brown hair. As they began spending time together, he discovered Muriel was delightful, smart, and gifted and just a great lover of people and more fun than you can imagine. He proposed on Valentine's Day 1948, and they married in August of the same year. For the next three decades, they raised six children and served God together at a variety of posts, including 12 years as missionaries in Japan. In 1968, they returned to the United States, and Robertson became the president of Columbia International University. It was Columbia Bible College then. Muriel taught at the college, spoke at women's conferences, appeared on television, and was featured on a radio program that was considered for national syndication. The first sign that their lives were about to change appeared in 1978, 
during a trip to Florida to visit some friends. Muriel loved to tell stories and punctuated them with her infectious laughter. But while they were driving, she began telling a story that she had just finished a few minutes earlier. Honey, you just told us that, Robertson said. But she laughed and went on. That's funny, Robertson thought. That's never happened before. But the same type of problem occurred again with increasing frequency. Muriel began to find it difficult to plan menus for parties. She would speak at public functions and lose her train of thought. She had to give up her radio show. In 1981, when she was hospitalized for tests on her heart, a doctor told Robertson, you may need to think about the possibility of Alzheimer's disease. It was hard to believe, since the disease which causes progressive degeneration of the brain does not usually strike someone so young. She was in her mid-50s. But the diagnosis was confirmed by other doctors. As the next few years went by, Robertson watched helplessly as his fun, creative, loving partner slowly faded away. Muriel knew that she was having problems, but she never understood that she had Alzheimer's. One thing about forgetting is that you forget that you forgot, so she never seemed to suffer too much with it, he said. Muriel found it more and more difficult to express herself. She stopped speaking in complete sen sentences, relying on phrases or words. Though she continued to recognize her husband and children, she lived, in Robertson's wor words, in happy oblivion most, to most everything else. There was one phrase that she said often, however, I love you. Robertson learned much about love from Muriel and from God during those first few years of her disease. When he was away from her, she became distressed and would often walk the half mile to his office several times a day to look for him. Once Robertson was helping take her shoes off and discovered that her feet were bloody from walking. He was amazed by her love for him and wondered if he loved God enough to be so driven to spend time with him. By 1990, Robertson knew that he needed to make a decision about his career. The school needed him 100%. Muriel needed him 100%. In the end, Robertson says the choice to step down from his position was easy for him to make. Perhaps the best explanation could be found in the letter that he wrote to Columbia Bible College to explain his decision. He wrote, Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time when she is with me and almost none of the time when I am away from her. It is not just discontent, she is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would still not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distress and frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. When Robertson accepted his new assignment, he thought his public ministry was ending, but instead it transformed into something altogether different. In a culture where people prize their individual freedoms above all else, this simple story of a man who loved and served his wife touched many people in a way he had never anticipated. The story of Robertson's act of love spread across the country. Pastors mentioned it from the pulpit, leading couples to renew their wedding vows. That's when I heard him speak a year after he had resigned from Columbia. Robertson relied on God to give him the strength to meet his wife's needs week after week. 
month after month. When people asked him if he ever tired of caring for Muriel, he would often say, no, I love to care for her, she's my precious. One special memory is of Valentine's Day 1995. He was riding an exercise bike at the foot of her bed and thinking of the past Valentine's Days, including the one in 1948 when he asked for her hand in marriage. Muriel woke and smiled and suddenly spoke for the first time in months. She said, love, love, love. Robertson rushed over to give his wife a hug. Honey, you really do love me, don't you? He said. In response came her words, I'm nice. It's her way of saying yes. Those were the last words that Muriel ever spoke aloud. Robertson continued to love his wife all the way to the end of her life. By the time their 50th anniversary passed in 1999, she had lost all ability to function on her own and spent each day lying in bed. Robertson wrote, Muriel's last day on this earth was September 19, 2003. In a letter to friends, Robertson wrote, for 55 years, Muriel was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, so it's like ripping off, ripping of my flesh and deeper to my very bones. Robertson said, but there is also a profound gratitude for the 10 years I've delighted in recalling happy memories. I still do. No regrets. I'm grateful. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I would like us to consider the passage by asking just a few questions. First, how is marriage a picture of Christ and the church? Look at the passage with me in verse 23. You'll see the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. We gain something of Christ's leadership in this statement. It also says that the church is his body and is himself its savior in verse 23. So he's the leader, but he's also the savior of the church. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's the savior of the church. But there's more in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Christ and the church likened to marriage, or marriage is likened to how Christ loves the church, how he loves you as a believer. The primary feature of Ephesians 5 isn't actually human marriage. It's clearly an application that's directly applicable and authoritative, for sure. But it's also showing us the kind of dynamic love Christ has for the church. And when you think of Robertson McQuilkin's uh, sacrifice for his wife, his service of his wife, of course the analogy falls short because he's a human being. But we get a little bit of a picture of how Christ loves us, that he gets to love us and provide for us, save us, and sanctify us. The primary feature of Ephesians 5 is Christ's love and his sacrifice for the church but the strong corollary is an example for marriage. You know, the Old Testament uses marriage in the marriage covenant as a way of describing God and his people. In Isaiah 54, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So we already see this metaphor in the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. This is God speaking to his people, the Israelites, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. He was the leader of Israel. He describes himself as the husband of Israel. You probably know the story of Hosea. Hosea is the story of God calling a prophet in order to 
call out Israel for their unfaithfulness, he calls this man Hosea to marry a prostitute. And Hosea is supposed to picture the faithful God marrying the unfaithful wife and how he works to eventually redeem his wife, Gomer, out of her wickedness, out of her unfaithfulness. And he does so by his faithfulness, by his sacrifice, by his willingness to be humble. This is the picture of God and his people given to us in the Old Testament already in Hosea. Of course, we get to the New Testament in the picture of God as the groom and the church as the bride starts to come forward in more clear terms as Jesus speaks in Mark 2. The people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They're trying to trip up Jesus and the disciples. And listen to what Jesus says in Mark 2:19. And Jesus said to them, can, a, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So he's calling himself the bridegroom. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He's calling himself the groom. He's calling himself the husband of the church. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's talking about the Corinthian people who the Lord, the Lord used him to bring them to faith in Christ and start that church. But the Corinthians were struggling. Um, they came from a, a difficult background, and they were constantly pulled back to their old life. And so in 2 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul is talking about Jesus as the groom and how he worked in his ministry to see the church, the bride, united to their groom, the Savior. In Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8, you know, one of the things that we look forward to is the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. So the picture is vivid in the New Testament about the bride and the groom, the groom being Jesus and the bride being the church. And Jesus is the leader or the head or the Lord of the church. He's also its savior, the one who uh, rescues and redeems. And he's also the one who disciples and sanctifies. He does functions in all these ways with the church. Marriage is a metaphor for Christ and the church, and it shows these features that are so critical. But if you were just to look at Jesus' love for the church as the, as the bridegroom, it is sacrificial. He lays himself down for her. It is attentive. He cares for her every need. He's faithful to her, and he perseveres in his love. This is the picture of Jesus and the church. He never is He's never unfaithful to us. He always has our best interest in mind, and he puts himself, lays himself down for us. You know, the sermon could very well be complete at this point, which I'm sure would make some happy. Meditating upon the love of Christ for us, his bride, what else would we need to bolster our faith? We should all have a sense of encouragement to know the lengths that Jesus has gone for us. The way Robertson McQuilkin loved his wife, Jesus even more so loves us. Even despite all of our incapacities and all our brokenness and our shortcomings and our failings, the Lord Jesus still loves us and has upheld us. He is our leader and our Lord. He is our Savior and he is our discipler. He is our sanctifier. This would be enough. We could close in prayer here. But this passage gives us more, especially for our relationship with each other. So in light of what we have seen of our Savior 
the blessed husband of the church, let's ask, two, ask and answer two more questions. Number one, what is the special role of husband in marriage? Seeing what Christ has done as example, what can we then apply to husbandship? And this is important for husbands and it's important for husbands-to-be. For the husband is the head of the wife, verse 23, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Head here, the word itself, is a term denoting a, a sort of authority for sure. It's not an absolute authority, but it's a defined particular intentional authority meant to do certain things, things that would mirror what Christ has done for the church. It has to do really with leadership. I've mentioned it a bit as I've described Jesus' roles, but let's think about these three pointed roles in the passage that Jesus executes in the life of the church. I would say there are three authoritative roles for the church, and they translate to husbands in a certain way. First, Jesus is Lord of the church, or leader of the church. Second, Jesus is the justifier of the church, or the savior of the church. He makes us right with God. And finally, Jesus is the sanctifier of the church. He disciples. He helps us grow. Sanctification is a process of cleaning up or turning more and more away from sin and more to God. So the Lord, the Savior, and the sanctifier, that's what Jesus does. Now, these are not one-for-ones, not suggesting, and the passage isn't suggesting that the husband can do that for the wife the way Christ does. That's not what it means. But these things Jesus has done are the picture of the kinds of activities in the way we should see ourselves relating with our wives. That's the point that's being made. Lord, leader, justifier, sanctifier. This is what we see unfold in the passage and we can apply for husbands in marriages. First, let's consider husband as the leader. It says in verse 23, husband is the head. That's what it means. He's a leader. Just as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands or to their leaders. The word head, in verse 23, is a delegated authority by God. It's not a dominant authority. It's not a lording over authority. It's not an absolute authority. It has a very specific purpose to provide in the wife's life. It's not a passivity or an avoidance of responsibility. It's an active leadership assignment. And so leaders are to work carefully and personally to help those who follow reach their potential. That's a generic sense of what a leader does. The leader's not there to serve himself or herself. The leader is there to help those who have been given to them by stewardship to reach what it is that God has for them. I like to use this illustration, and I know it, it breaks down at some level, but hear me out. Um, when I coached a soccer team, you had, I was the coach. I'm the one who's the authority. There's no doubt. I rank higher. That's for real. That's the way God would be. He's the coach. But the team is made up of equals. Now they have varying different gifts and abilities and such. But at some point, when you have a, a roster of 18 players and there are 11 out on the field at one time, there has to be someone who's the voice for the coach while they're on the field, or at least relaying the direct messages as best they can. And the referee certainly sees it that way. The referee doesn't want 11 players telling them every time they don't like a call or wanting an explanation. So the coach selects someone to act as the captain. doesn't mean they're the smartest or best player. It just means that there's something by the design of the coach that sees this individual fulfilling that role for the betterment of the team and the players. The players will do well if they have a solid captain. 
And so that captain carries himself out on the field, and when things arise, a player's hurt or needs help, the captain goes over and tries to give them direction. When they're off the field in training, the captain's responsible to remind the team what they should be doing, and sometimes has to call into correction, but many times is wor speaking words of encouragement. Uh, acts as a sort of proxy, not on the same level as a coach, but with a, a very clear purpose. I think when you look at headship and marriage, you can see it this way, as a much uh, better understanding of the outflow of headship as the Bible lays it out. So husbands, were captains, if you will. The Lord's assigned you the role to be a leader to your wife and to your family. And your main goal is to please the coach who has given you this mantle. Now, it's true, wives, you have a responsibility too. Uh, I'm not covering that part in it, because I do think that as husbands carry out this role, that the role of the wife to follow in a submissive way, in a loving way, that flows pretty naturally when the husband's doing these things. When, Christ, when we know what Christ has done for us, that's when our obedience as individual believers uh, is most effective. That's, that's when I discover victory in my own life as a Christian, is the more I understand the grace of God and Christ to us, because of what he's done for me. That's the biggest motivator in my life. And one of the biggest motivators in the marital, marital relationship is when the husband lays himself down like this. That then has a, an effect to have the wife fill into the role she's been given in a God-honoring way. So think in terms of headship being the captain or the leader. Paul is defining the husband's authority in terms of the way Christ exercised his servant-like, sacrificial leadership, looking for, looking for the opportunity to lay himself down for his wife. The role of the husband, starting with the wife, is to lead all members of the household to a full apprehension of the Lord's grace in their life. The husband is a redemptive agent in this sense, in a way to always point his wife and his family to the work of Christ. This is the way he leads most healthily and most effectively. It does not mean overbearing monarch, because that's not what Christ is. It means a sacrificial captain who lays himself down and builds up the team and the confidence that the team has in the coach because of the leadership he provides, which is always and ever about putting her and them, the family, first. That is the picture that Christ absolutely gives us. So when this metaphor is given, we cannot mess this up. We have to see what headship means is a sacrificial leadership. That's what it means. That's my role to build up my wife, to build up my family, to put them first, to make her feel worthy, not diminish her. Brian Chappell says, well, that biblical headship is simply the exercise of God-given authority whereby a man does all that is within his power to see that love, justice, and mercy rule in his home even when fostering such qualities requires his own personal sacrifice. He must lead with the kind of love that is willing to die for his wife and for his family. That's what Jesus says. He's the example in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the husband is head. This is a function of a servant leader. Chapel says, additionally and very helpfully, husbands should follow the example of Christ who gave of himself to glorify the church. The radiant beauty that God desired for his spiritual house, he purchased with the price of his own blood. Our Lord submitted his life to glorifying his bride. The husband, like Christ in the church, is a leader. But there's something else. The husband is also like a savior in marriage. Again, not a savior redemptively the way Christ has provided it, but in a way that provides protection and sacrifice for her life. 
It stems or flows from what we've just seen. Look at verse 23. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So how does this translate to husbands in marriage? Notice in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Give ourselves up for our wives. That's what we ought to do. So there's certainly a physical reality to this, um, that we are to consider our wife's life and her salvation before our own. Um, we're called to lay down our life to advance the life of our, wife, our wives. Husbands, we have to take inventory of the needs of our wives and then forego some of those things that we may feel we need or should have to think of her first. This is precisely what Christ did for us. So there's a physical reality, but there's a spiritual reality as well. On the basic level, the husband puts his physical needs behind the needs of his wife and children. That's the way of our Savior. But he also takes into account her spiritual health, her spiritual life. Um, how does she recognize the grace of God shown to her in Christ through the way we relate with her? Now, some of that will be the failures that we have in our repentance in our humility before the Lord when we do mess up like that. That in itself shows the grace of Christ. It's not meaning that you're going to do all this just like Jesus, but you're always pointing to Christ, and you're modeling what it means to rely upon Christ yourself as a sinner. Husbands, consider our wives and their spiritual well-being. This is what leadership does. This is what being a savior-like person in their life is. The husband-like Christ in the church is the leader of his wife. The husband, like Christ in the church, is like a savior to his wife in this sense, a spiritual champion. But one other note, the husband, like Christ, is also a discipler to his wife. There's a whole other element to what Jesus does for the church besides leading and saving. Look what it says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, that is to cleanse her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So there's a process that happens that prepares the bride for the ultimate marriage supper, if you will. That's what's being described here. So Jesus leads the church, saves the church with his own blood, and then continues to work to cleanse the church, to help us grow in God's grace. And the description here is a, a deliberate allusion to the bridal bath in ancient wedding ceremonies, Jewish and Greek weddings. There would be a, a nuptial bathing, a ritual bathing that the bride would undergo before she would meet her groom, a cleansing bath. And then she'd come adorned in white linen, a white linen dress. She'd look perfect. Nothing quite like that part of the wedding ceremony. I've done many weddings in my life, and my favorite moment is when I'm standing up at the front with the groom, and then the doors open up, and there is his bride, dressed in her white dress and is perfect looking as she could look. And just that connection made between the bride and the groom at that moment, prepared for him. The process we are in is that God is working to cleanse us, his bride. And this is the way of the Christian life until he comes again or we go to be with him. And then we finally will have the great marriage supper of the Lamb. But in the meantime, the primary way he works, or the most normal way he works, is in the marriage relationship for the husband to continually try to encourage his wife in her spiritual maturity and growth by all the things we've already spoken about and addressed. And that's how we see 
the work of Christ translate to what the work of the husband is doing in the life of his wife. In verse 28, this works out for everybody. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. We're one flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. It sounds selfish up front, but if you think of what it's couched in, it doesn't come off that way. But if we were smart guys, we would recognize that our one flesh union is the most important union we have other than our union with Christ. And so by promoting her, that ultimately makes all of us healthier. As you nurture your wife, you're nurturing yourself. Verse 30 and 31, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, cleave unto his wife, as the old King James said, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. He's telling us what he's teaching us through this. It's, it's really dynamic. It's what Christ thinks of and does for the church, and it's how husbands should model their concern and love for their wife. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. John Stott, one of my favorite commentators, didn't get married till much later in his life, said this, he longs to see her liberated from everything which spoils her true feminine identity and growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. To this end, too, the husband gives himself in love. Christ is the leader, the savior, and the discipler, and we take our cue from Jesus. These are the roles that every husband is to strive towards fulfilling in his family's life. And when we fail, brothers, we go back to Christ. And this is true of all of our spiritual life. When we fail, we go back to Christ. And he never forsakes us. He never turns us away. In fact, by his uh, wise providence, this is by design for us to continually depend upon him. To simplify the bare-level practical reality of living out Christ in our marriages and to kind of conclude this last question. What does love your wives mean in a very practical sense? It says in verse 25, he gave himself up for her. In verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. We're one flesh. Verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. To love like Christ, this simply means sacrificial. It's a cleansing love to love her with the love of Christ. He gave himself up for the church, the pinnacle of love. No higher standard is conceivable. Self-sacrificing love. A love that helps, seeks, it seeks to grow her in Christ. John Stott also said, a Christian husband who even partially fulfills this ideal preaches the gospel without ever opening his lips. It's one of the key ways people can um, gather what the message of the gospel is. I don't mean it substitutes for a proclamation of the gospel, but it is a picture of one laying their life down for the other. And this is a general way in which we manifest to the world that the grace of God has gripped us, is by showing that others are more important than ourselves to the point of sacrificing. And the picture of marriage is one of the fastest inroads to an explanation of the gospel that you can imagine. People can see in him the husband, Stott says, that quality of love which took Jesus to his cross. Brian Chappell, I mentioned earlier, writes a great book on marriage. He's commenting on Ephesians 5.25. He's talking about husbands loving your wives. You know, how do we love our wives? And he answers this way. A husband's love for his wife is intimately tied to his knowledge of Christ's love for us. If a husband or a wife is not secure in Christ's love, if we need control over another to have some confidence in ourselves, then we cannot love as Christ requires. 
We will have no resources to serve another if we are not sure of our standing in him. Chapel goes on to say, his love is relational fuel for the wife. If we are running empty, not filled with the knowledge of his love for us, then we will inevitably, inevitably suck personal energy from the life of our marriage. Only when our hearts are brimming with the knowledge of his grace do we have the resources we need to maintain Christian marriage. Without a sure relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we simply do not have the security or strength necessary to sacrifice for the good of another. Ultimately, Chapel says, the only resource we have that enables us to love as Christ requires is, requires is his own love. In 1957, Bill March met, his, met and married Nancy. Some of you know Bill and remember Nancy. Nancy was a beautiful, deep, bright, and wise woman. Nancy was strong in God's word. And by Bill's admission, she was far more advanced than him in the faith and in learning. Uh, the Marches joined Redeemer in 2004, and Nancy was immediately active in leading Bible studies and prayer at church. She was of a, a particular encouragement to me with her deep thinking and profound biblical insight that she humbly and regularly shared. She had a theological library that rivals any pastor. Um, in 2008, we had a celebration for the Marches, their 50th wedding anniversary in the Commons area at church. But just a few years later, Nancy was starting to have trouble remembering things. Bill noticed immediately, especially given Nancy's notable mental sharpness for so many years, many of us recognize this. And over the next 10 years, the decline was painfully obvious. In the last five years of her life, she barely recognized Bill, but Bill brought her to church every week. Each day, he had to win her trust afresh so that he could take her places, and he was happy to do so. He loved his wife as Christ loved the church. He cared for Nancy daily. He would take her places, kept her active, and we, he would bring her to church. He would sit in the middle section, and during the passing of the peace, I would talk, and I could tell it was like meeting her new every week. She would smile, a little bit confused about how she even got there, and she would look back at Bill and say, uh, he took me, he's my friend, he's this nice man. Now, they've been married 55 years, and that's how she was referring to him. It was painful for him in one sense, but he knew his role was to have her there, to be there and ha have contact with people. And as the Lord would work in her life, maybe she at moments would remember. Whatever the case, he knew what his role was, and he continued to bring her. He gave her safety. He cared for her. He laid down his life for her. They were married 61 years when Nancy finally went to be home with the Lord. Bill March is almost 90 now. He came back to church for the first time since the COVID situation a couple weeks ago. Um, he's almost 90. Nancy's been gone for almost four years. But Bill loved his wife as Christ loved the church. And that ultimately really is what a real man is. That's the picture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Please bow together with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word paints a beautiful picture for marriage. Indeed, no greater love can be depicted than the love of Christ for his church. Please, O oh Lord, grant all husbands and future husbands here a love for our wives that prompts us to give ourselves up for them. Please do this as a way of manifesting the gospel to the world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.